You are listening to the Permission to Burn Your Manual podcast. I am your host, Kathy Whaley, MD, physician and life coach. Do you want to live the life you choose? A life that is by design rather than by default? Well, that path to the life you choose is uniquely yours, and it's filled with limitless potential. So join me and burn your manual. This book that defines our expectations of self, but also holds us back. Together, we will forge, innovate, and refine as we go along. Okay, friends, I am here with my friend, Dr. Debbie Bradley, who has recently decided to pivot her career and leave clinical medicine. And I'm further going to let her introduce herself because I think she can do the best job. So, Dr. Bradley. Thank you for having me on today. Um, Yes, my name is Debbie Bradley. I am a medical oncologist, also a physician coach. I am an avid mountain biker, um, definitely an adrenaline junkie. And in the last year, I've really learned how to live my authentic self. Very awesome. So when was the first time that you considered leaving clinical medicine? I'm curious how long that's been brewing. Yeah. You know, I think that's an interesting story. Um, because the switch that I, that occurred in my brain of like, I'm done was more recently. But when I've really had some time to think about it, I firmly believe at this point in time that the first time I thought about it was a year ago. And that was the time when I found myself in significant burnout. And I walked into the room of a very young patient with a really horrible cancer And I just kind of stopped for a second and said, wow, that could be me. And it just hit so close to home that I really stopped over the next couple of weeks and said, like, how can this be happening to her? This is so unfair. And what if this happened to me? Would I have regrets? And the answer was yes. And so I firmly believe that that's the first time that I really thought about it. But I think that I spent probably nine months in denial. Mm -hmm. Well, and really, at least from my perspective, there's sort of, for me, there was the autopilot mode, right? Where you were miserable, but this is like your baseline and therefore you just sort of keep on trucking. Yeah. And then there came for me this point where I was aware But then telling myself, no, like you've worked really hard to be a doctor. This is what doctors do. It was an immediate shutdown of however I felt. So there was for you this sort of aha moment with this patient where you realized that you weren't living your life like you wanted to. Absolutely. But at that point in time, you know, I identified fully as a medical oncologist who sees patients. And, you know, I've been doing this for 16 years. It's what I do. And so in my brain, I don't think there was a space for me to consider doing something else. Now, certainly over the next several months, you know, I myself um, hired a physician coach. You know, I met this amazing community of women really, I think, got out of what I would consider burnout, um, started 
experiencing some anxiety, some depression. And in retrospect, I think that was all me trying to bottle back up this desire to do something different. And I had thought about, well, gosh, you know, maybe I could do, you know, industry farm, right? And it'd be so exciting. You know, I used to do research early in my career and haven't done as much actively. I still put patients on trial and things, but it was something that I really loved. And so several times I said to myself, what would that look like? And then there was this immediate, no, I can't do that. I'm an oncologist. I know how to be an oncologist. I could be an oncologist in my sleep. It's a very comfortable spot. Financially, I'm very secure. You know, I know everything about my job. I know the goods, I know the bads. And so for many months, it just wasn't a possibility in my mind. And now that I can look back and see the anxiety, the depression, you know, I firmly believe that those were signs my body was sending to me that you're not following kind of your North Star. You're not really heading in the direction that you want to be heading in. But I really couldn't wrap my head around the fact that there was something besides clinical medicine for me. And so it was really recent when I came in and I had something that had happened related to a patient. This has happened to me multiple times in my career. And that particular day, I just said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I am ready to leave clinical medicine and move on. I'm ready to move on to my next chapter. And I just kind of stopped because I felt so sure. And I was so confused, right? I was like, where is this coming from? Like, how can you feel so sure of this decision? How, how can you even be thinking about this? And it was amazing because there was almost this piece of like, this is what I'm going to do. I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go follow like this idea that I've had in my mind of what the next chapter looked like, and I'm going to do it. And I started looking for jobs and I converted my CV to a resume and talked to other people. Like, am I running away or am I walking towards like, what's going on here? Because it just seemed so sudden to me. And then about a week after that, I was like, oh, I'm not sure about this, right? Like, I think I can be an oncologist. You know, I just need to set better boundaries. You know, I need to find other things that are going to make me passionate. You know, I'm a little bit bored. Um, you know, just something to kind of stir things up a little bit. And as I was looking at some different opportunities, and I really sat there and looked at them, it came to me again. And it was like, no, you can't make yourself fit in this box. Like, no, right? And it was the same thing again. I'm done. And at that point in time, I realized like, holy cow, like I'm really done. And then as I put it together, I'm like, I've been done for a while. And I think it was the stages of grieving and denial mm. was a huge one. And then I think when I went to like, I'm done to I'm not done, you know, it was really the bargaining Mm -hmm. And I feel like I then had to really learn to just walk with fear and redefine what failure is for me to really reach acceptance. And mm -hmm. now I'm super excited, but it's definitely been a process. And I think the fascinating thing for me is I just didn't even realize it was occurring. And I think that's how I could be so sure is my brain had been processing this, you know, for many, many months. I just wasn't really willing to admit it. It was just so far from 
what I expected to say, you know, like I, like this was my dream, right? I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an oncologist. I wanted to be faculty. And I was kind of had everything that I wanted. And and how could I want to not do that anymore? Uh, And I think as physicians, right, we think, oh my gosh, we take care of patients. Of course, this is what we do. How could I even be considering it? And then I think the other thing that was coming up is I felt that certainly I could just organically be arriving at the spot, but I definitely think that the current healthcare environment really kind of set up the perfect storm for me to say, I'm done. You know, the moral injury, the burnout, all of it together. And so then I went through this phase of, you know, being very sad and angry and and kind of grieving how, what it looked like to be leaving. And just being very sad and upset that I was actually at the point where I made this decision, but on the mm-hmm. same token, feeling like super excited that, yes, this is the direction I need to walk in. So am I correct in thinking that you decided to go before you figured out how to go? Yes. How did that feel to have decided mm-hmm. to go, but not have it, the how all sorted out? Did that disrupt your peace in any way? Absolutely. It absolutely. And I feel like that's what really took me back to, oh no, I can do this. I can stay. I can just make some changes and I'm going to be happy again. And I can, again, push down this desire to do something different. And it took coaching and, um, you know, interacting with some very positive people in my life. And I had two distinct conversations I'll share with you to make me realize that, yes, I could do this. And the first conversation was when I was working with a coach who helps people transition from clinical medicine into industry pharma and just teaches you some of the tools you make. And one of the things I needed to do was take my CV and make it a resume. I mean, I had never heard of a resume, right? Like a CV is what you do in medicine. And so just the concept of making a resume, I had no idea, but we spent an hour really looking through my CV and what skills I had, you know, what I'd accomplished and, you know, all these things were on there and they've been on there for years and to really be like, oh, you know, I have done a lot of things like, wow, I do have a lot of talents. And it was kind of like this aha moment of like, yes, I am qualified. I am qualified to do something more than clinical medicine. And then the Mm -hmm. second key conversation for me was when I was coaching with someone and they said, Debbie, you can't fail. I'm like, of course I can fail. I can fail in so many different ways. And she said, I mean, let's think about this for a minute. If you go to industry pharma and you don't like it, you're not good at it. You can always go back to clinical medicine. You can always find something else. You have an amazing skill set. You know, you set yourself up in a way that you're not just going to fall flat on your face. And as I took those steps forward, I kept hearing that voice of like, you can't fail. And I realized that so much of my hesitancy, even though I knew the direction I wanted to go was that fear, that fear of failure, I think Mm -hmm. was just holding me back so much. And is one of the things that I have had to really walk with is that is fear, right? And and to really redefine what failure is. Is failure is more of an opportunity to grow. 
Right. And in medicine, I feel like failure is just something you don't talk about, right? Because failure either means you don't get into residency or you don't get into med school or, you know, once you kind of make it where you are, it's a poor patient outcome or right. you know, patient death. So failure fails equals just death. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that we ever want to use. Mm-hmm. Right. The, at least in the practice within healthcare, failure is very loaded concept, but outside of our actual clinical practice, you know, it's a matter of how can you turn the idea of failure into a win-win so that even if you went to pharma and it didn't go exactly as you expected it to, you still have collected experience and data and information that informs your next choice. You know, you learn things about yourself, you learn things about pharma, but it's hard for us to recognize. It certainly has been hard for me to recognize all of that gain in the experience in the moment, if it doesn't go exactly as I expect, right? There's this expectation reality mismatch that pops up everywhere (laughs) that really gives me pain. And, you know, several people I know pain because every time that expectation doesn't meet reality, there is grief and loss right there. Absolutely. So for you, with the identity of medical oncologist, how do you feel your identity has changed from pre-deciding to go to this moment? Now that I've been able to reach acceptance, I realize that my identity has not changed, right? I'm still the same person I can look at the fact that I've, you know, I've been a medical oncologist for 16 years. You know, I've graduated from med school over 20 years ago and I've enjoyed taking care of patients. And I think it's been an honor, but I'm ready to take the next step to to start writing that next chapter. And I'm still very much going to be in oncology and I'm going to be continuing to work with oncology patients, although on a very different level. And so the reality is I'm still the very much the same person doing a little bit of something different, but I'm still a medical oncologist and I'm still using my skills. And I think I'm going into an opportunity where I bring a tremendous amount of experience of real life oncology. And I, and I think that's just going to put me in a much better place. Mm-hmm. So in the setting of acceptance, I can say I'm no different. I can tell you though, when I've told people that I'm leaving, I've left other positions, you know, I've moved on, you know, I think it's just a natural part of life as, as we grow. When I've told people I'm leaving this position and they say, well, what's next? When I tell them there's these amazing pregnant pauses. And I think the difference is that Again, so many people are surprised that you would leave clinical medicine. So I think some people just can't wrap their head around the idea that someone would do something different. You know, a physician who's been practicing medicine would do something different. I think in some cases, there's maybe a little bit of jealousy or envy saying like, gosh, you know, I've been thinking about the same thing. Medicine's really rough. Like, I wish I would have, you know, had the ability to do this. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like there's definitely people who are disappointed in my decision. And I've had to really process that they're not disappointed in me. They're disappointed in my decision. 
Uh, and that's been key for me that they feel that I am, you know, leaving something that I should continue to do. Right. Like, you know, I took up a residency spot. I took up a fellowship spot. And I think that's the reality. You know, there's some people that feel that if you leave the sacred practice of medicine, that you're kind of going to the dark side. And what would be your response to them? I would say absolutely not. You know, I am still very much using my skills. I'm always going to be a physician. I'm a physician now. I'm going to continue to be a physician. I'm going to continue to use my skills and my experience as a physician. And my response to them would be, you know, realize that the identity of someone is not just what they do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, I'm a physician. Yes, I practice medicine. Yes, I'm going to do industry pharma, but I feel like it's so important to have an identity that is much more than is just medicine. Right. My, so I definitely, when, you know, I was very burnt out, was so tightly wrapped to the identity of physician that the idea of giving up clinical medicine made me feel like I would be completely running amok with no identity. And I really had to shift and recognize that like, even the title physician is not really my identity. It's what I'm doing in that role. It's how I'm serving and what's important to me and how my values and ethics come out. And in changing a title or a position, it doesn't, change who I am in those roles. It just changes the role in which I'm giving it. But that was a long time coming for me. It took me a very long time because just like you, I mean, it was a lifelong dream. Um, You know, my dad is a physician and I never wanted to be a physician to be like him. I just genuinely loved the science and I loved learning. And so there was... I had other interests, but there was really never a question in my mind that I would become a physician. And so to have spent so many decades solely focused on achieving that goal, only to get there and decide that I'd had enough, felt catastrophic. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it, right? It was like, looking a gift horse in a mouth. And in some ways I was almost paranoid. Like I shouldn't talk about it because if I talk about it, like maybe this will all go get taken away. I mean, like nothing rational about that, but you know, when you're in that degree of burnout, there is some lack of rationality there. Absolutely. And I am so thankful that I found physician coaching, you know, literally a year ago, because I don't think that I would be able to be making the decisions that I am making to be confident in writing my next chapter, to have this level of acceptance without it. Because a year ago when I was in the midst of burnout, you know, full on burnout, again, a physician was my entire identity. And through this year of really realizing that, Yes, I am a physician, but I'm many other things. I'm in a very different place. And, you know, I feel very strongly in both prevention of burnout as well as treatment of burnout. Mm -hmm. The the concept of, of realizing that you're so much more 
Absolutely. It is key. What I find really interesting is that for, you know, this is true of non-physicians, but it seems like it takes a really pivotal point to almost like jolt us into giving ourselves permission to choose differently, right? Because the choice was always there. Like you could have left clinical medicine at any point in time, but there comes something that really pushes us over the edge where we say, okay, now I'm going to exercise my choice differently. And it's not dissimilar to patients who are diagnosed with a terminal illness, right? Like how many times have we known somebody that they're diagnosed with a terminal illness and they decide that they're going to change the way they live their lives, knowing that it's shorter, right? But in reality, the ability to have chosen differently was there all along. It took something that really jolted awareness to access the choice and to give ourselves permission. Yeah, I think that is so true. And I can distinctly remember having several conversations probably over the last two years. You yourself might have found you found yourself in one of these conversations where you have a frustrating day and you're just sitting there talking to your colleague and you're like, what else could I do besides be a doctor? And we would jokingly brainstorm and say, you know, for me, I grew up a competitive figure skater. I'm like, well, I guess I could go, you know, teach figure skating, right? And he had said, gosh, you know, maybe I could go to the YMCA and be a counselor, right? And Mm -hmm. we come up with these, I'm not going to say ridiculous. I think they're, you know, great things, but we don't see opportunities to do anything else. Like I literally Mm -hmm. said, the only other opportunity that I'm aware of that I could do was teach figure skating, which is, you know, so funny because I wasn't ready to see it. I didn't value myself enough. I really only saw one option, like this is what I do. And the reality is physicians, we have so many skills. We have so many talents that we can do so many things should we decide to do so. But yes, I do think that there is something that happens and I almost look at it like for me, it was a boundary that it was crossed, right? Like Mm -hmm. as I've been learning over this last year and getting out of the people pleasing and trying to really show up as my authentic self, and put some boundaries in place, I feel like the pivotal event for me was, okay, you've crossed my boundary. I'm done. I'm not Mm -hmm. willing to do this anymore. And that's what it was. It was almost like a switch in my brain had gone from, I show up in the morning, like I'm a medical oncologist, you know, I'm going to do this for, I don't know, 10, 15 more years Mm -hmm. to literally, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm done. And again, all the grief and things and and then the acceptance of like, and it's okay. I've I've done this for a long time, you know, and, and I'm grateful and I'll always be grateful. And this will be an experience that I will take with me and I will grow and I will be better at the next opportunity, but mm-hmm. it's just time to do something else. Right. So, so my dad uh, and his med school roommate created a backup job like the very beginning of med school, they decided that they would choose a backup job. They both decided they would be tie salesmen together. But the relevance of that is that when I went to med school, my dad said, choose a backup job because it's going to be the thing that keeps you sane during the hard times. You're going to think about your backup job. So my backup job was being a baker because I love to bake and have always loved to bake. And um, it's funny how 
those things like being a baker or being a tie salesman for me when I was downstream and I was a physician, the idea of being a baker was very inaccessible. I mean, I was literally telling myself like, you only know how to be a doctor as if doctor is not a big deal or it's something that's like lower than, right? And I don't mean to imply that it's better than, but I think anybody who gets into healthcare, they show that they're good at learning, right? They can learn things, they can do hard things. And so when I was trying to contemplate what's next, I was almost judging myself for being a doctor. It was like, this is this is all I'm capable of. And that backup job became some unattainable something because in my mind, these were the only skills I possessed. Yes. And I think that that's hundred percent in that conversation of like, what else could I do? The only thing else I'm aware of that I could do is I used to teach figure skating, right? In college. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, that's the only thing that was accessible to me. Now, again, I don't know how serious I was. Maybe I was being more serious, right? Like that's, I think when I was really exploring of like, maybe this isn't what I want to continue to do. But mm-hmm. I 100% agree. It's it's not accessible. And and even as I brainstormed, you know, I had these moments, right, where I'm like, maybe I want to do, and then it's like, oh no, right, the brain just like shut you down, or maybe, and probably it was like G- December, January, where I was really like, I really think I want to, you know, go back into clinical research. I think I want to do it. And my brain offered me up all kinds of reasons why I could not right? Like why I wasn't qualified. And then, mm-hmm. you know, really looking at it, I was like, you are being ridiculous. Yes, you're qualified, you know? And then really just sitting there and having someone go through my CV with me and really make me look at things in a different light of like, okay, what did you do here? What were your skills? And I was like, wow, you know, yes, I, I do have a lot of skills. Right. It's amazing how much we do not, you know, how much we discredit all that we've accomplished or all that we do. It's like, we don't make them mean value. Right. And I think some of it is, you know, a lot of physicians have this perfectionistic Mm -hmm. trait, right? And when you think about doing something new, clearly there's a learning curve and you're not perfect at it, or you're not, you know, super skilled, even if you have the skills to do it, like there's no doubt you love baking, you could become a baker but you're not doing it every day. And so to look at that and say, well, I don't have it completely figured out. I can't do it. I think it's just very interesting that our minds do that to us. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you, how do you get away from that? Absolutely. I mean, it's intentionally and on purpose. That's the only thing I can say, you know, I was, sort of in the process of burning down my life right at the beginning of COVID. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And in fact, when I was offered jobs that were non-clinical, but still required me to be a physician, I was like, hell no, I'm not doing anything that requires the MD at the back of my name. Like this role is going in the trash. And it it really like there was just this moment of desperation that pretty much coincided right at the beginning of the pandemic where i was sitting in my car outside my house sobbing and leadership 
still wanted me to get on the phone. And like, it was after hours. This was not a patient emergency. Like this was a been to my will emergency on their behalf. And I remember ignoring the call and sending a message that said, this is not a good time. And I got back a, I don't care. I need you to get on the phone. And I got on the phone in that moment and had a conversation that was like the least important shit coming out of her mouth that I could have ever. And that was what broke me like right there. That was my pivotal moment where I was like, I can't believe I just answered that phone call. Like, I can't believe that I actually didn't enforce this. And, you know, COVID sort of blurred all of my boundary lines for a while because I was functioning as a hospitalist and also hospice and palliative care. And COVID was like smack dab on our doorstep. We didn't have good systems in place at the beginning. And so it was just like one clusterfuck after another. And so I do 100% believe that my boundaries being blurred impacted whether I called back, but like that wasn't all. It was like, I was done being someone's doormat for no purpose other than bending my will. Like, no. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment where I was like, you know, I'm not going to leave clinical medicine yet. Like it, it all coincided with discovering a coach, you know, being done and ready to burn it. Like we had put our house on the market and I was preparing to cash out my pension and sit on the couch till I figured it out. And so I put everything on hold for some coaching. And that was, you know, earth changing for me. And so then like I'm still in healthcare and I'm fine most of the days, but there are days where that moral injury sets in. And I still ask myself, like, do I stay or do I go? Because I know there's going to probably come a point where it's going to be a go, but I can't just stay on autopilot, right? I have to at least reaffirm my choice and give myself the choice. And I prior to this, I didn't give myself a choice until that moment when I was so done that I was like, oh no, I'm out. I may not know how to do anything else, but I will sit on the couch and figure it out. I have saved well, right? And so it's it's a constant. Like I asked myself a couple of weeks ago, do I stay or do I go after a particularly egregious, you know, moral injury moment? And so I think in whatever job we're doing or whatever change we're contemplating, an important factor is being aware and giving ourselves permission regularly to change our mind and to say, hails no. Yeah, I think you bring up a couple of, you know, really important points. I definitely, my switch was in a point of moral injury. I didn't know what it was at that point, but it was moral injury. And I think. The second point is that absolutely we have to realize that we have the choice. And when people told me that in nine months, like you have the choice, I'm like, I don't have a choice. Like, but yeah, you do. You you really do have a choice. Like we are very capable people and there's a lot of opportunity to us. So yes, we have to believe we have the choice and be empowered to stay or leave. 
And I think the third point I really want to bring up is that the realization that so many physicians, especially, I'm going to speak to physicians because that's my lived experience, but it's healthcare providers are hurting right now. And there's so much burnout and there's so much moral injury that I feel that there needs to be, I'm going to call it code humanity, that there's a point where people are so burnout and they kind of reach the end of their rope. And at that point in time, there's no rational thought and you, you don't know how to get yourself out of it. You just know that you're behind in notes, you're exhausted, you feel like you're failing at everything. Um, you don't see any opportunity to do something different. And what you need is rest. And you can't do that because you know that if you do that, you know, you're going to be, you know, making it more difficult for your partner. But I feel much more behind. (laughs) Yes. And I feel like this is just happening so much. And we look at physician suicide rate, especially amongst female physicians, that there needs to be something, some recognize. I mean, this is not going to be something that you pull out all the time. But just mm-hmm. some word that you can say that basically says, I'm not in a good place and I need help. All mm-hmm. right. And I say code humanity because physicians are humans. Right. And I know that I was in that dark place, you know, several months ago. And I was just remember thing like enough. How many more things are you going to pile on me? How can I keep going? Like how much more? And it is just sad. And and I feel like I've seen this in other of my colleagues where they just need a day off. They just need to sleep. They just need to catch up on their notes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're in a system, you know, very much to your phone, you know, your phone call. You're like, I don't have it now. Nope. Get on the phone. Right. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know where it is and I don't know how we enact it, but it's kind of become my new soapbox is we just need something where physicians can just say, I need help. And, you know, these are the healers, like heal the healers, support the healers. Right. So uh, there are those who their reluctance to change or considering something is they say it's almost, you know, how society is really built on this idea of self-sacrifice. And I mean, that's not just a healthcare thing. That's just a if you live here, you're supposed to sacrifice yourself for others. And, you know, it's permeated in religions and cultures, but within healthcare, right? There's definitely this culture of subjugating your own well-being in the service of others and in service of the health system. So when I talk to somebody who is contemplating change and they're really not embracing the idea of giving themselves a choice, most often they see themselves as abandoning society, abandoning the public. If I don't keep doing this, who will? What happens when everybody leaves? What would you say to that? Like, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that because that in itself is a pandemic within healthcare. Those people who think they cannot leave because then there will be no one left to care for society. Yeah, I think that is tough. And I definitely felt a little bit of that. And I think it's only because I can really examine mindset and done coaching. And I was able to really stop myself from kind of going down that rabbit hole. Mm 
mm-hmm. that I could feel better about it. But I remember very much saying like, who are we going to take care of these patients? You know, like, who, is it going to be a locum? Is it going to be this? And, you know, if I'm leaving and this person's leaving and this person's leaving and, and you look at the great resignation, you know, very much saying like, who's going to be left to take care of us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's being dramatic because there's certainly a ton of people who are, you know, still very much happy. Um, you know, that's their calling. This, this is what they're doing. But we definitely are in the middle of the great resignation. And if you look at the projected shortages, I think it's going to, it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. But my advice to those people are you've got to take care of yourself. There is always going to be another patient to be seen. And you can't single-handedly fix the system. We as a healthcare system, you know, the healthcare system in the US, like I feel like we need to have some really hard conversations. We need to make some major cultural changes. Mm-hmm. And it's the elephant in the room. But it's not one person's responsibility to fix the problems of the system. You know, you can't possibly see all the patients that need to be seen. And if you don't take care of yourself, you know, you are going to leave, right? Either you're going to choose to leave or you're going to be there and you're so burnt out that you're not taking good care of patients or, you know, you're just, you have no empathy. I mean, something's going to happen. Or you kill yourself in that moment. Or you kill yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you have to take care of yourself. You have to listen to your internal voice that says, this is what I need. And I think you have to give yourself permission to truly listen, like, what, what do I need? Mm-hmm. And it's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to need help. It's okay to say I need help. You know, I think we need to do more of that. Like tell people what we need. Right. I always tell people that they need to remember that they're a patient too. Yes. And, you know, that really rang home for me when I realized that right at the beginning of the pandemic, I mean, I almost fantasized about being sick, right? It was like, I'm so desperate for rest and therefore I need to get sick because patients are the only ones that deserve care. And that is the most like warped backwards thinking, but you know, that was just what I had become conditioned to believe and how to act. And so you know, I I interestingly did get really sick, but not with COVID. I got really sick with flu right after COVID started. And I had been working pre-COVID way too much. I worked, I did a bunch of moonlighting really just because I felt horrible about myself and I felt horrible in it, but I felt the most successful when working and it didn't have to face the fact that I thought I was a horrible parent. So I moonlighted all the time. I mean, it's like I might have four or five days off a month most because I picked up so much extra work. So I was absurdly run down and I got the flu. Like I swabbed positive for flu. It took me literally three or four months to recover. Like I was working. I worked while I had the flu. I had my computer at home with 104 fever certifying time cards. Cause I was telling myself, if I don't do this, who will, I think we all know somebody would have, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this was not a life or death situation, but I was so distorted at that point in time. And somehow this was a part of service that no, 
I did that. And then every moment that I was not at the hospital, I was asleep for three or four months. I just went to the bed every time I got home and I stayed in it until it was time to get up the next morning. And that was a, another big aha moment. Like the the whole chief of staff making me mad was like right at the beginning. And then I got sick with the flu. And when I sort of recovered after that, I was like, oh, this is going to be different now. So I, I completely agree. The healthcare system and the culture change is really necessary. So I'm going to bring up for me what is like a topic that I, that really gets me going. How do you feel about all of this whole resilience training and talking about how resilient the healthcare providers and workers have been throughout COVID, et cetera? Yeah. Resilience drives me crazy. You know, it's like putting, what is it? Lipstick on a pig or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, feel like that's been the kind of going line for several years of we just need to teach them to be more resilient, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are some of the most resilient people out there. I think if anything, they need to teach us how not to be resilient. I mean, when you were just talking about the patient, I remember back to residency when I was so sleep deprived, I kind of wished I was going to get in a car accident on the way home just so I could sleep. Mm -hmm. And that is the culture the toxic culture that we grew up in. And so we learned that you will, to be a doctor, to be a good doctor, you don't put yourself first. It's always someone else. And how many times have we had an IV stuck in our arm so we can keep working? How many times have we gone to work with fevers and being sick? And even in the COVID pandemic, I don't care. It's don't ask, don't tell. Like you put a mask on, you're like, oh, no, I'm not coughing. No, I don't have any respiratory symptoms because you you, ha- you feel that you have to show up. You have to do it. And so, yeah. yes, like resilience, we are resilient. Like we are resilient people. That's not the problem. Help, yes, help us. But you I'm, know, help. I'm frankly offended at the idea that somehow we need to be more resilient, like it's not good enough, right? Because resilience really hinges on the idea that you recover faster from an insult or stress, right? So there's no, that's a downstream, you know, putting a Band-Aid on a festering wound. It doesn't address the upstream cause and effect of saying, okay, why do they experience this much stress? and these many insults, right? Because that's the part that's not okay. And we sign up for it knowing that it's going to be a stressful job. I don't think anybody conceives of how much stress there is. And it's, you know, the part that cannot be controlled for is the stress of having someone's life in your hands and trying to save it. That is a circumstance out of control. But all of the stress that is brought on at an institutional level, at a systemic level, at a insurance healthcare level, that is the optional part. But that conversation is not happening by the people who could actually fix it. And so this became a really big rub because I I wanted to make the healthcare system better. Right. I mean, I I thought if I was a leader in healthcare that 
I would be able to influence change. And then I realized, no, that's going to have to be at a, a lobbying political level, which I'm really not interested in. And so then it was the recognition that like, okay, I'm behaving exactly like the person that would serve this super screwy health system. Like I keep showing up when they beg me for a shift. I keep doing all of these things because I'm determined there'll be no one else to do it. Well, look, I don't want any harm to come from anybody, but I also realized that like, I can't keep putting a bandaid on the festering wound. It's killing me. Like it's literally making me ill. And so the resilience training thing, I'll tell you what triggered it for me recently was that I saw a post in a group that, you know, it didn't offend me in any way. It was, um, it was someone really sort of grieving because the same sort of wellness tools that you and I are talking about, like coaching really just hadn't worked for her and were not, you know, producing in her mind. And that ultimately she wanted to stay in medicine because it was her dream, but it didn't appear that her authentic self was accepted in medicine, right? And there was just something about how she wrote it all that really triggered me about, you know, no doubt she's the person that someone is trying to make more resilient, right? When in reality, that is not her problem. Like resilient enough, plenty of that. We've got to slice this pie a different way now. Yeah. And I also feel that by using resilience, if you were just a little bit more resilient, it's a great way for perfectionistic people to be like, oh, it's me. If I could just do this better, if I could just do this better, if I could just do this better. And so I feel like when I meet women who are experiencing burnout, experiencing moral injury, they very much think that they're broken and mm -hmm. that they're failing and that they're failing everything. And they look around and they think everyone else has got it together, but we're so good at masking, right? None of us really have it together. Well, and I don't know, maybe some people do. And if, if you're out there, please come coach me. But right. the reality is we're all struggling, but we put this face on because that's mm -hmm. what we've been trained to do. I mean, we can run a code, lose a patient, and walk right next door 30 seconds later and say, hi, Mr. Smith, how are you today? Right? right. You've been trained to do it. And mm -hmm. so I get very frustrated at resilience because I feel like it puts the problem back on the physicians, on the healthcare provider. No, that's not the problem. The problem is systemic. Mm -hmm. And we've got to do things different. Or I feel like we're already in a huge crisis and the crisis is going to get worse because more and more people, I think, are going to say enough is enough. Right. Right. I'm not going to kill myself to do this, or they're just going to reach the point where they can't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. Or they don't do it well, right? Like, and I don't yes. mean even well from a perfectionism standpoint. I just mean from a safe and not negligent standpoint, not intentional negligence, but negligence because you're not healthy, you know, yes. mentally, physically not healthy. And yes, those are all just really really good points. And, you know, it's almost like those people that think they must stay because there's going to be a shortage 
they themselves expect more resilience out of themselves. Yes. And you got to figure out how to make it work, how to stay. Right. Right. And I don't think, so I completely agree with your point that these conversations we're having right now are not the conversations that are happening in a hospital. I find that healthcare professionals talk a lot about the systemic issues, right? Amongst ourselves, the system is broken. We're too short staffed, et cetera. But we don't actually talk about the downstream consequences for ourselves. We don't talk about how much the systemic problems are hurting us, how much we hurt, how much we suffer, how exhausted we are, et cetera. And I do think that now in this pandemic world, we're starting to talk about it more, right? It is starting to get put out there more, but I almost feel like the gravity was lost a bit for the public because we started talking about how exhausted we were in the context of the pandemic. So they assumed that this was new. Right. But in reality, no, it's been this bad. We just dug that much more deeper to deal with the bone weary exhaustion that came in the pandemic and only got worse. And so there's a lot of isolationism and loneliness in healthcare providers and other professionals. You know, you can be sitting right next to someone and feel completely alone because, as you said, you think that you're the one that just doesn't have it together and everyone else is doing fine. And it takes having a breakdown in the midst of people for someone to realize you don't have it together. Yes. And I can say that one of the most healing activities I've been involved with from burnout is community and talking to other women and realizing, no, it's just not me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so many physicians do feel it's just me, but it's not, it, it really is a systemic issue. And so many of us are going through it. And I'm grateful to have found, you know, this amazing group of women mm-hmm. who are willing to say, yeah, I'm hurting. I don't have it together. I've been burnt out. You know, here's where right. I am. I've been, you know, I've been suffering from depression, anxiety, you know, all the things, because the reality is we're human and we do a great job of putting on that face and walking in, but a lot of us aren't okay right now. Right. And it makes me very sad that I look around at my colleagues and realize like how many really aren't okay and how many are not even willing to admit yet that they're not okay. Right. Because, you know, we've been there, we've done it, we've seen it, we know what burnout looks like. Mm-hmm. But I think it takes a long time. Like you're, you're so far down into it when you finally realize like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Right. And then you're like, oh yeah. Okay. How'd that mm-hmm. happen? Right. I I especially love the code human because I think part of what we're struggling with is suppressing the humanness in ourselves for the purpose of working in healthcare. And it's like fighting, clawing, bubbling out at this point, right? And so for so many reasons, I think the code human is a brilliant phrase to, you know, use when someone needs help and is not okay. You talked about human again, and so it came to mind again. (laughs) Yeah, how do we get it out there? I mean, we know what code pink means. We know what code Mm -hmm. blue is. We know what code lavender is. We know, but I really think there needs to be something in there where people, you know, where a physician, a provider can come in and just say, 
you know what, today I'm not okay. And the realization that that's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for that person. It's the right thing to do for the patients. Because at that point in time, I guarantee you the last thing that person is thinking about is the patient in front of them. Right. They're just like, how do I get through this day? Mm -hmm. And so it's a hundred percent the right thing to do, but you know, how do you get that awareness? Like, how do you get the systems to realize it? And I myself have experienced it and I've seen others experience the same when you try to go up to your leadership and just be like, look, I'm overwhelmed. Something's got to change. And they're like, well, okay. You know, maybe we can look at in a couple of months. No, at this point in time, like you need help then and there, right? You you need something to give, even if it's just for an afternoon or a day, like something needs to give then and there. Right. Absolutely. Well, I don't know that we can necessarily make the institutions take it on, but anybody who's listening to the podcast, spread the code human, like get it out there. And clearly we just need to put you on like every podcast in the whole world. We need to get you on Nurse Blake. Hey, I got my microphone. I'm ready. Telling you. Okay. We'll we'll have to work on that. Um, any last thoughts that you have for everybody as we wrap up this wonderful chat? I just think that the most important thought is, is realize how much you truly are and that you can do whatever you want. Don't limit yourself. Dream big. Realize you've got the skills. And don't let fear stop you. Mm. Right. Let the fear be present, but have the courage to do it anyways. Absolutely. Learn to walk with it. Mm -hmm. 100%. Thank you so much for coming on. Yes. Thank you for having me today. Are you ready to start making progress, forging the path to the life you choose? Well, visit me at freedomforphysicians.com. Here you will find free resources and guides for any healthcare professional ready to get started. As always, I'd love to hear from you, so don't hesitate to reach out.